Thanks for coming tonight on a beautiful beginning of summer night. It's hard to come inside sometimes like this. Judge, so can you turn it down just a little bit, please? Up at the monastery, there are 40 plus or minus people um, doing a week-long meditation retreat entitled uh, Ancestors. Honoring the ancestors. And it's about lineage. It's about the, the teachers that have come before us. Now, most of you, probably, found that the history part of, of school was kind of boring. What did the War of 1812, or the Seven Years' War, or the Thirty Years' War, or the Hundred Year War have to do with your particular life? So, um, for some people, history is very interesting. But it becomes interesting when something touches us. So if we are interested in sowing something, we don't actually have to find everything out from the beginning. We can actually look and see, well, what did people do before me? How did people manage this problem? How did people do this? If we're looking at building something, we don't have to learn how to build and do everything from scratch. We, we, when we get interested in something, we want to do something, we have to look and ask, well, who came before me? What did they do? How did they do this? What's, the, what's the, the bigger view? All kids have a certain point they get into, interested in, where did I come from? You know, how, how did this thing come into being? Why am I like I am? And if they had the good fortune of growing up in a family where there's lots of stories told, then they hear stories about their grandfather, the pirate, or their you know, great uncle Bill who was in the Civil War, or their mother, who great great aunt who had 12 children, and, lived out in the prairie. And then you, get, you hear these kind of stories, and you get intrigued about, well, gee, you know, maybe I have some pirate blood in me, whatever the equivalent is. In Buddhism and in Dharma, we often talk about lineage. And we don't talk about it, we, we can, but we don't usually talk about it as, what is the history? You know, if I, what, what's, there's lots of books written that you can read the history of, so-and-so taught so-and-so, taught so-and-so, taught so-and-so, taught so-and-so. And I think in Christian tradition, there is the, the begatting section of begat, 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 begat. Not very alive. But when we begin getting interested in our own mind, in our own practice, when we begin to, to look into the nature of our own being, and we begin to, to, to actually taste the, the essence, we begin getting curious. Where did I come from? Where did this practice come from? And when we actually begin to realize that in our, in our tradition, our practice began with the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, and 82 generations of people, 82 generations, 82 lives of people practiced, taught, realized, went through all sorts of difficulties in order to teach us, that in order to teach me, in order to teach my teachers, in order to teach them, that we are the recipients of a great wealth of information and experience from 82 generations. And that's just almost an arbitrary starting point, because the truth is always present. So part of lineage is, well, how do we end up here? What is, what is this? How did, how did I come into being in this way? 
There's interesting stories about that. It's kind of nice to get some appreciation of that. All the chants that we do were written by some one of our ancestors or other. All the chants in the book are written by one of our ancestors or other who had some deep experience, some deep meditative experience, and they said, I'd like to, I want to express that experience. I want to try to communicate that to my progeny, people who come after me, and I'm going to make, write this particular thing down, all about my experience. So all the chants that we're chanting are really about one of our ancestors' experience. Excuse me. Now, an interesting part of practice is as we go into the direct experience of this body-mind, and we begin looking at where did this body-mind come from, and we begin to see that there is only this moment. That everything else is just an abstraction. So we don't know, for example, what's happening with our cars outside or our bikes. We don't know. It's a memory. It's a thought. It's a, it's a hope. We hope that it's there, sitting there safely and sound. We hope the bus will come, pick us up when it's supposed to. But we don't know that. When we actually begin practicing and we rest more and more on what we actually know, what we actually know, the direct experience of the body, and then even more deeply, the direct experience of the mind that is aware of the body, and we see that it only happens in this moment. Well, where are our ancestors? Reality only happens in this moment. Where are all our progenitors? If our direct experience of this moment is the only thing. So then, when we actually have a taste of this, the power of now, as Eckhart Tolle says, well, we become kind of interested. Maybe the ancestors, even them, are right, even they are right here. What does that mean? I see that. So when we're talking about ancestors, we're talking about it at so many different levels. There's a historical lineage. There's you know, all these cultures and generations and continents and things that our lineage went through. There's the humanness of it. You know, 82 generations of human beings, all of which suffered, all of which had difficulty, all of which somehow or other roused an interest in uh, the matter of great importance, roused interest in what is true, had a realization and did their very best to pass it on to the next generation, to the next generation. There's that. There is the direct experience of everything is in this moment. There is no other time or place. Very different experience. Same thing. So, looking at, at, at lineage, looking at our ancestors, we have to actually appreciate them in lots of different ways. It's not just one way is right. But there's lots of different ways of appreciating the ancestors. So one of the uh, Dharma threads in our particular tradition is um, Maizumi Roshi. Maizumi Roshi was a Japanese person who uh, was born right after the war. He grew up in post-World War II Japan. And his father was a temple priest, Bayan Hakujin, who was in our chant book also as part of our lineage. And he was a fairly uh, political 
animal. He was involved with the politics because every group of people has got politics in it. Sure, Buddhist priests as well as you know, as well as sewing machine makers. I mean, there's politics in any group of people. So he was very involved in politics, and. So he was a temple priest. He had a temple, like a congregation. He lived there. His family lived there. And in earlier Japan, uh, back a, another um, century maybe, uh, the government wanted to con kind of control and keep track of where everybody was in Japan. So they made up a system of what they called dankas, where each person had to be registered in a temple. And so Buddhism and became one of the official religions of Japan. Every single person was registered in a home temple, and these temples were scattered all over Japan, and they had a resident priest, and the resident priest was responsible for keeping track of the community. Well, 50 years later, post-World War II, that particular system no longer was so strong, but nonetheless, there was a temple, a priest, a large congregation around him. And Maizumi Roshi grew up in that and he was not interested in being a priest. He was interested kind of in being a, a gangster, I think, for a while. Um, he was a real rebel. And he decided, uh, but you know, in, in Japan, especially in those days 50 years ago, you had a filial responsibility. So it was very common that the oldest son, very common to have one son follow, just like in our in uh, Europe in the Middle Ages. It was always one son went to the priesthood, one son went to the military, one son inherited the land. That was the, and the others were kind of wastrels who, who were uh, kind of pushed out of the nest. So Maizumi Roshi became, uh, was a temple priest's son. He was ordained as a, as a priest, and he went to um, uh, college. He went to Komazawa University. And while he was in Komazawa University, he lived in a Zen practice house. Anyway, kind of like Trillium House is down the street, uh, except that it happened to be a Roshi who lived there. So he lived in this Zen Buddhist community. Uh, you know, not, not quite like the monastery is, but a kind of mixture. A whole bunch of people living together, practicing together, going to school, going to work. A Roshi was there. And the Roshi really influenced him very much. His name is Koryu Roshi. So as Maya Izumi Roshi got a little older, he became ordained by, by his father, which is a traditional thing. Uh, one of the ways they ensured temple succession, you know, if a father would automatically give his son Dharma transmission. But Maya Izumi Roshi wasn't really satisfied with that. It was too, too um, ritual, just too superficial. And he became intrigued by this guy, Koryu Roshi, who apparently was a very powerful person. He was a lay teacher a very powerful person who had a charisma and who attracted somehow lots of people around him and included this group of students. So Maizumi Roshi began doing some Zen practice with Kori Roshi. And he had a, some kind of deep awakening with Kori Roshi. By awakening, what we mean is he was able, any of us are able to step outside of our, our fixed view of the world and who we are. We step outside of that fixed view, and we begin to see something that is more fundamental, that we are not separate individuals, We're, that we have a, an intimate relationship down to the very cells in our body with all things, that the air and the, the, that we're breathing and the molecules that we're eating have passed through 
generations and generations of people before us and animals and plants before us. That we're made up of non-self elements, as Thich Nhat Hanh likes to say. So he had a, a deep experience of, of oneness or oceanic experience or something. But it really caught his attention. He said, oh, there's something here. This is not just philosophy. This is not just a good idea. There's actually a direct experience that, that all these chants are really pointing to something that I can taste. Well, he grew up, uh, he finished school, he left uh, his staying with Kori Roshi, and he, he was assigned by the Soto Zen political animal uh, in Japan, which is very dense. Uh, he was assigned to come to America. He wanted to come to America, and he was assigned to go to a temple in uh, Los Angeles, Zen Shuji. Um, the, the G on the end of all those Japanese names just means temple. So it was the Jin, Zen Shu temple that he went to. And it was one of the, um, back around the turn of the century, maybe even a little bit earlier in the late 1800s, there was a flood of immigration from Asia to America, to the west coast of America. Flood of immigration. The Asia was a wreck. It was a mess. You know, China was just degenerating. It was the end of the dynasty. All the European powers had taken it over. It was filled with violence. It was filled with poverty. It was filled with starvation. It was filled with opium. It was really a mess. And there were lots of immigration immigrants from there. And Japan was traditionally a very impoverished country until just this last maybe 100 years or so. Very impoverished country. So in the 1800s, there was a wave of immigration. People came over from Asia to work on the railroads, to work in the canneries, to work in forest and fishing, just to escape. Just like, just like in a wave that likes happening in Africa and Europe right now. Waves of people. And actually, in the 1800s and early 1900s, there were all these Asian exclusion laws. You know, there was discrimination against, against Japanese and uh, Asian people and very severe, very, very nasty laws about couldn't go here, and they couldn't go there, and they couldn't ride this bus, and they couldn't ride that bus, and they couldn't stay here, and you know, they, couldn't, they weren't allowed to vote, and they had to live very draconian laws. Well, because the laws were so great, so aversive, um, then people would congregate together. Of course, we all like to live with people who are safe. We like to live in a place that we, we feel comfortable. We like to live with other people who understand us. So all the Asians would congregate into small communities, and then they would have temple priests would come over. And there would be a priest that would be sent from Japan or from China that would take care of that particular congregation. Now, obviously, when the uh, deportations happened during World War II, that whole system got very uh, broken up. But many of those congregations resurfaced after the war. Well, one of those congregations was in LA. Maizumi Roshi was assigned to this congregation with this old, old Japanese guy. And you know, he was down there. They would do lots of rituals, lots of bowing, lots of offerings, lots of ceremonies, uh, almost no meditation. Well, during that era of uh, the United States, E.T. Suzuki one of the uh, great Japanese translators, began translating texts about enlightenment. He began translating all these fantastic stories about you know, great Zen masters. And Alan Watts, uh, in, back in the 50s, would do radio shows and 
television shows on, on the marvels of enlightenment and the mysteries of the East and the, the, the great awakening and how you had to practice and how you could have an enlightenment experience which would solve all your problems. And, you know, um, and so there was a real thread in the 50s and 60s of this new way of looking at the world, the new way of looking at the world, that somehow we were not just insignificant things and it was the afterlife is where everything would be revealed. It was we are not just, just um, inadequate things and it was this, this gross, dross world is not to be appreciated. It's only the afterlife that's to be appreciated. Well, Buddhism came in and said, no, no, this life is important, it's vital. It's, it's the source of all awareness. So, Alan Watts was talking, and D.T. Suzuki was talking, and D.T. Suzuki um, was taught at Columbia University, taught a number of other places. He wrote a number of interesting, interesting books, Zen and Japanese culture, and he talked about tea ceremony, but he talked about enlightenment, talked about awakening. Well, so D.T. Suzuki and Alan Watts began to seed people's interest. And so in the 60s, people began going to these Zen centers, which were actually these Japanese uh, social conclaves. They really weren't teaching meditation. They weren't really teaching about awakening. They weren't really teaching the things that we think of as Buddhism. It was a, it was a social club. It was a, it was a cultural center where people could do familiar rituals and they could do their familiar ceremonies, but it didn't have the flavor of practice. Well, Maya Roshi was at one of these centers and he said, this isn't, I'm not interested in this. I'm really interested in practice. I'm really interested in meditation. I'm really interested in looking at my own mind. So he moved out and Suzuki Roshi from the San Francisco Zen Center came over, had the same kind of experience. All these people kept coming to them saying, teach us to meditate, teach us to meditate, teach us to meditate. And around that same time, Philip Kaplow, one of my first teachers, was at Columbia University. He was in New York. He had been a court reporter um, for the Nuremberg and the Tokyo war crimes trials. So he heard you know, the, the, the ultimate depravity of human beings. And he heard the, the intense, immense suffering of, of all these people. And he just woke up this angst in him. And he went to Japan in his 30s. He left his, his business, went to Japan, and he began doing session and practicing in Japan. And he began doing lots of meditation. He was involved with session from uh, back in the early 50s. Well, so Suzuki Roshi, Maizumi Roshi, Cap Lowe, and a couple other people, all came to Japan, uh, came to the States and began founding centers in the 1960s. Cap Lowe founded his center in 1965. I think the Zen Center of uh, San Francisco was somewhere 63, maybe 62. ZCLA was 65, 66, somewhere in there. And so people began coming to these centers. And for many years, when I started practicing in 1968, there were really literally about maybe four or five places that were very, very active where there were Zen teachers. Now, Maizumi Roshi, who's in our lineage, all these people came to him and he said, my understanding isn't adequate. 
you know, all these people are coming, they're asking me about things that I don't know from my own direct experience. I need more training, more education. So he went to a guy named Yasutani Roshi, who was a very well-known, respected teacher in Japan, and he began doing session with Yasutani Roshi. And he worked with Yasutani Roshi and went through a whole koan curriculum. The traditional koan curriculum has 1,700 koans. It goes through several different books of koans. Um, it's a whole different talk. So he, he had Dharma transmission with his father, Bayan Hakujin. Then he had Dharma transmission with uh, Yasutani Roshi after completing his koan work. And then he went back to Kori Roshi, his first, first teacher that he lived with. And he went through the koans again and, and also kept practicing with Kori Roshi. So Mayazumi Roshi, who is the, you know, the person that Chosen has Dharma transmission from, the person who ordained me, has Dharma tra- had Dharma transmission, had authorization to teach, because he had completed his training in three different lineages, Bayan Hakujin, Kori Roshi, and Yasutani Roshi. So he founded the Zen Center of Los Angeles. And um, back in early 1970s, I think, Chosen and her first husband, Michael Soleil, Tetsigan Glassman, Joe Quebec, Gimpo Merzel, Shishin Wick, you know, a lot of people who are known very well in the Zen circles these days, all began practicing with Mayazumi Roshi. And they moved to LA, lived at the Zen Center of Los Angeles. Um, I was there for several years. Um, at one point, ZCLA owned almost an entire city block of Los Angeles. There were so many people. There were 80 ordained people. There were hundreds of people on the, on the, on the, uh, on the block. Sashin, there were three different rooms, about maybe not quite this size, for uh, Sashin. And they had three different teachers doing them all. It was a very, very active place, because there really was only you know, one of the few places where there really were authorized teachers that were. And Maizu Miroshi was a really quality person, really quality person. Flawed, but quality. So Chosen began practicing back in the 70s with him, and she had Dharma transmission, or she got um, she had authorization to teach. She had Tokudo, I forgot which one, in 1976. And then in the early 80s, 83 or 84, we went to Japan, Maizumi Roshi uh, and Daido Roshi and a few other people we went to Japan. And she did a ceremony at uh, the two head monasteries of the Soto school, so Gigi and Heiji, kind of officially certifying her as a teacher in the Soto Zen lineage. So you begin hearing stories like this, you know, that, that, that unfold about our ancestors, and you kind of get a little curious about, well, what happened? To, what were these other 82 people, generations of people like? What kind of suffering did they go through? What kind of insights did they have? What can I do? How can that affect me? In early Buddhism, they had a uh, a traditional teaching that there were 500 arhats. That is, Shakyamuni Buddha had 500 enlightened Dharma heirs. And if you go to China to to see some of the monasteries, they often have an ancestor's hall. And in the ancestor's hall are 500 figures in the big ones. And sometimes they're life-size. And sometimes they're maybe that size. and there used to be lots and lots and lots of them before the Cultural Revolution. But you'd look at these ancestral uh, halls, and each one of them has a unique expression. Each one of them has a unique hand gesture. Each one of them has unique clothing. And the 
reason, the purpose of that is to say everybody has the potential for awakening. Everybody. And the ancestors of our lineage, the 82 generations, came from all kinds of walks of life. There were people who were professional monks, and there were people who, who were lay people, there were people who started out as, as uh, you know, business people, and people who started as farmers, and people who started as emperors. There's all these threads, because the common denominator that goes through every single lineage, the common denominator through all those 500 arhats, is the essential nature of our own mind and everybody's mind. It is exactly the same. So part of what we do in practice is we see the same eye that the Buddha saw. See with the same eye. We see, and we begin to see the thread. Now, if you look at any of our ancestors' um, histories, they all had big challenges. If you're a human being, you've got big challenges. It's the first noble observation of you. Know, if you're a human being, you've got problems. You've got problems with your body. You've got problems with your relationship. You have problems with your job. You have problems with, your mo- with money. You may have problems with violence. You may have be in a war zone. You may have, you know, whatever the case may be, you've got problems. So all of the ancestors in our lineage, all the great teachers, all the great historical figures that we know about, all of them had bodies. All of them had social situations. All of them had problems. So regardless of what our particular challenges are, regardless of what we face, regardless of the obstacles that we encounter, there is something that we can discover. And other people with the same problem, the same challenges, have also discovered it. And that is liberating. It is not suffering. And in a way, you could even say that that which is aware of birth and death is not born and not, does not die. But that's got to be a direct experience. So up at the monastery right now, I'm, I'm sorry, I got carried away. Uh, and, and then a little interesting story is Roshi Kaplo, when he started the Zen Center of Rochester back in the 60s, and he was invited at one point to go to... Um, or MIT, I think MIT. He was invited to MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, to give a talk on Dharma and Buddhism. Well, MIT is, you know, a very highly technical school, and it's not a real bastion of Buddhism, not a real bastion of the spiritual life. So he went to MIT, and he was going to give a talk, and he had five people show up for his talk. Well, what you do if you're if you're teaching is you teach whoever's in front of you. You just do your very best because somehow you never know who's going to show up. Well, among Kaplow's five people, one of them was John Kabat-Zinn. John Kabat-Zinn, as you may know, is a physician who was at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who started mindfulness-based stress reduction, who has transformed medicine and psychology in this country. Transformed it. And he began, he, he says this, he began one meeting with Philip Kaplow at MIT back in the late 60s. So every time we encounter a drop of some truth, we have the potential to wake up, to manifest our, our potential, our, our, what's, what's carried in our body, what's carried in our mind. 
our fixed ideas about ourselves are usually are so small, and we usually kind of feel like we're squashed in a little box. But when we actually see our potential, we don't know how it's going to unfold. We don't know what's possible. All sorts of things are possible. All sorts of things we never expected. We started this community was a few people sitting in our living room in Lake Oswego. We came up in 1982, maybe, from ZCLA. And we lived in Lake Oswego with our kids, and we had a little sitting group, and we had, you know, half a dozen people. And I don't know how it happened, but you know, you've got all of, you know, got this giant monastery, and you have, you know, hundreds of people that come through, thousands of people that come through, and this whole magnificent place. You just never know what's going to unfold when you are dropping the small-minded expectation, feeling directly the life energy that's flowing through you and doing your best to offer it to other people in some way. So that's the reason that we, some of the reasons that we have this particular um, honoring of our lineage. Isaac Newton said that I am something like, I'm like a dwarf standing on the shoulders of giants. I can see farther. If I can see farther, it's because I'm a dwarf standing on the shoulders of giants. Because no matter how insignificant our particular capability and capacity might be, no matter how insignificant our particular understanding, when we truly rest on this great heritage, we have the ability to actually see farther than we could see by ourselves. So there's a, a week-long retreat of the lineage and the ancestors of the monastery. And I have given you a off-the-cuff little flavor of that here. Um, just, just to round it off a little bit, our center, the Zen Center, no, what are we called? Thank you. The Zen Community of Oregon. Great Vow Zen Monastery and Heart of Wisdom Zen Temple, has as its founders a whole series of our teachers. I studied with Philip Kaplow. I lived in Rochester for six years, from 68 to about 75, 69 to 75. We both lived at the Zen Center of Los Angeles with Maizumi Roshi. We both um, studied with uh, Gimpo Roshi, who's a little nefarious these days, but still. We both have uh, began working with Shota Harada Roshi, who is a Rinzai teacher, a whole different stream, a whole different kind of practice. I've been working with him since 1990, so that's almost 25 years of working with him. Uh, we have a number of Vajrayana teachers that are involved with our community, uh, Raha Rinpoche, Dan Brown. Uh, we have Tenzin Wangmal is going to be coming later on this year. We have Nam Thubton who was just here. Uh, so our particular community, the Zen community of Oregon, has got all these threads of streams of lineage coming through. We used to have Ajahn Amaro, who was a Thai forest tradition, the Southeast Asian tradition, was very active in our sangha before he moved to England. So this community is the inheritor of and embodies this very rich, very rich series of traditions practice, of service, of community, of uh, scholarship. I mean, there's so much scholarship that we don't really talk about down here, all part of that. 
So we are the recipients of all of these wonderful streams of giants who went before us. And so here we are all together. Thank you very much. I have time for a question or two. I won't talk very much on it. Okay, Barry, you waited long enough. You don't have a question? Sorry, this it's This is the first time in 15 years that Barry was caught without a question. I'm, 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 I'm astounded. Philip Capillo was the author of the three, a book called The Three Pillars of Zen. And it was one of the first seminal books on Buddhism that came out. It was about the practice of Zen, not the philosophy of Zen. So it's still, it's still, in, it's still in print right now. Yeah. Okay, thank you all very much. Thank you. Well, uh,